Our message this evening is entitled, Superpowers of Bible Prophecy. And tonight we're going to look at the key superpowers. And we will discover how, how history tells the ancient story of empires of the past. But we're going to see that these empires were actually predicted on the pages of prophecy long before they were written on the pages of history, giving to us further evidence that God's Word is the truth and we can trust the message of the Bible. As we mentioned last night, friends, we are all in the midst of a great, of, of a great controversy between good and evil, a cosmic battle between righteousness and wickedness. And as students of Bible prophecy, it's so important for us to understand the nature of the two principles, the two kingdoms that are fighting for supremacy so that we might make an intelligent decision to be on the right side and on the winning team. And I want us to notice as we turn to Revelation chapter 12 this evening, we read from Revelation 12 last night to begin with. I want to notice another verse in this chapter because this is the chapter that actually describes this battle, this war between good and evil from beginning to the end. And I want you to notice what it says in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. It describes the climax of this battle between good and evil that we're all in the midst of this evening. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. Please write it down. Notice with me in your Bible. If you're there and if you're ready to study, please say amen. The Bible says, And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. My friends, here we read in prophetic language. The description of a dragon, a terrible monster that is filled with rage and anger, and he's seeking to attack and make war with a woman. Now, what does this mean? Well, we don't have to guess, friends, because the Bible interprets itself. In verse 9, it tells us the identity of this terrible dragon, this monster. It says in verse 9 that the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan which deceives the whole world. So we see that the dragon is Satan. And so when it talks about him filled with wrath against the woman, who exactly is this woman that Satan is so angry with? Well, friends, in Bible prophecy, God uses the symbol of a woman to represent his church or his people. And you can write this scripture down for the evidence. In Ephesians 5 and verse 25, the Bible says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. The husband-wife relationship is an object lesson of the relationship that Jesus wants to have with his church. He is our heavenly husband, and we are the earthly bride. You can also write down 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 2, and many other passages make it plain that in a prophetic symbolic context, God utilizes the symbol of a woman to represent his people or his church. And so when we read in Revelation 12, 17, how the dragon is making war with the woman, it's a symbol of how Satan wants to destroy you and me. He wants to destroy the beloved bride of Christ, the church of God, living in these last days. The devil, friends, is a master of war. A master of deception. And he knows that he can't overcome Christ. 
So he tries to hurt Christ by hurting the beloved bride of Christ. And friends, when you read about this war in Revelation 12 verse 17, this same war is actually expounded upon when you follow the context into the very next verse, which is in the very next chapter, Revelation chapter 13. For in the 13th of Revelation, we find outlined through prophecy exactly how the dragon is going to make war with the woman. And we're going to discover tonight and on future nights that the way in which Satan is trying to destroy the church is through the Antichrist beast power described in the 13th chapter of Revelation. Let's read it. Revelation 13 verse 1, it says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. The beast which I saw was likened unto a what kind of animal? A leopard. His feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, the who everyone? The dragon gave him his power, his seat, and great authority. And so we read the strange language of a beast that rises up out of the sea. This is the Antichrist power that the dragon is going to utilize in order to make war with the woman or the church of God. Now, friends, what does this mean? A beast rising up from the sea. Friends, if you ever see an animal like this, don't run, just pray. Obviously, it's not a literal animal. It's symbolic. It represents something. Well, what does it represent? We don't have to guess because the Bible interprets itself. We will see tonight, friends, that a beast in prophecy represents a king and its kingdom. We're going to read that verse in just a few moments. So we're not talking about an animal. We're talking about kings and kingdoms that the dragon who is Satan will empower to try to destroy and attack the woman or the church of God. If that's clear, would you please say amen. And I want us to remember, friends, it's an earthly kingdom but Satan is the one that's behind this earthly kingdom. We read that it was the dragon that gave the beast his power and his seat and great authority. Satan is the one that will empower this earthly kingdom. And I want you to notice what this earthly kingdom, this antichrist beast will do in the last days. You can notice verse 4. You can see it in your Bible. It's also on the screen. It says, and they worship the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? And who is able to make what? War with him. So there you see it, friends. The dragon is making war with the woman, but he does it through the Antichrist beast kingdom. And then it says in verse 7, And it was given unto him, that is the beast, to make war with the who? With the saints. That's the same thing as the woman. It's the church of God. He's making war with the saints. And to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And so again, the dragon empowers this beast, this earthly kingdom, to make war against the saints, the church, the beloved bride of Christ. But I want us to notice that this antichrist beast is not only going to make war against the church horizontally, but he's also going to try to make war against God vertically. For notice what it says in verse 6. 
it says, and he opened his mouth in blasphemy against who? Against God. To blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. So I want you to notice this characteristic. It's very important. Don't miss the details that we're laying out tonight. Whoever this Antichrist beast is, it's empowered by the dragon who is Satan. And they're going to make war against the people of God horizontally, but they're also going to make, try to make war against God himself vertically. Now, friends, no one can make war with God physically and overcome God because God is almighty. Amen? No one can outmatch the power of the omnipotent one. Satan is mighty, but God is almighty. And so the way in which the beast makes war against God is through blasphemy, deception, and lies. I want you to keep that in mind. And I want you to notice this beast has specific characteristics. We read how it has the, the mouth of a lion, the feet of a bear, it has the body of a leopard, it has seven heads and ten horns, and it speaks blasphemy against God, and it makes war against the people of God. I want you to keep in mind those specific characteristics. Tonight we're going to find out what exactly those characteristics mean. It's one beast, one animal that has the characteristics of other beasts or other animals. We call this a composite beast or a composite kingdom. One kingdom that has the characteristics of other kingdoms. Now, who exactly is this Antichrist beast? What do these strange symbols mean? Well, friends, tonight we don't have the time to identify who the Antichrist beast is. But we're going to lay a foundation that will be built upon on a future night. And in order for us to understand who this Antichrist beast is, what we need to do, friends, is go back to the Old Testament foundational context where these symbols are first utilized. Let me back up for a moment. And let me tell you that the book of Revelation is a mosaic of Scripture. You know what a mosaic is? Many small pictures put together to make one big picture. That's kind of like what the book of Revelation is. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. How many? And at least 274 of those verses are direct quotes or echoes from the Old Testament Scripture. So when you study Revelation, you can only understand what it means when you study the rest of the Bible especially in the Old Testament, where the imagery of Revelation is actually coming from. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to go to the Old Testament apocalyptic book of Daniel, where the symbols of Revelation are actually coming from. We're going to get the foundational context, and we're going to build upon it in future studies. So take your Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 7, where the symbol of the lion, the bear, and the leopard, and the terrible dragon beast is first introduced. We go to Daniel, the seventh chapter, and let me remind us as you're turning there that the primary purpose of prophecy is to reveal Jesus. The reason why the Lord reveals the future is not simply to inform the intellect or satisfy the curiosity. No, friends, that's not the purpose of prophecy. The purpose of prophecy is to give us verifiable evidence that the God of prophecy is the one true God. He knows the future, and we can trust Him with our future. Oh, my friends, we're living in a world that's falling apart. We're living in a world where planes are dropping from the sky and, 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 and there's terrorism all around us, natural disasters and more decay, international unrest. 
This world is falling apart and the future looks so bleak. It looks so uncertain. And friends, in the uncertainty of the world that we live in, thank God that we have a sure word of prophecy that dispels the fear and gives us hope. Amen? That's what every human being is wanting and longing for, hope and peace and sweet rest. And that's what Jesus offers. And so I want us to keep that in mind as we study the details of prophecy and comparing it with history. The purpose of it is to lead us to the point that we can trust God with our personal future, with our finances and our health, with our marriage and our children and every other aspect of our lives. We serve a God that loves us. He knows what's best and He has our best interest in mind all the time. He is a God that is worth serving. Amen? So we're in the book of Daniel chapter 7. And I want you to notice what Daniel saw in vision in, let's begin with verse 2. Daniel 7 and verse 2, please write it down. Notice with me in the Bible. If you're there, would you please let me know by saying amen. The Bible says this, Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. Daniel here describes how he was taken in a dream, in a prophetic vision. And he saw the wind blowing upon the sea. And all of a sudden, he saw four beasts, four animals rise up from the sea. What does it mean, friends? Well, I want you to write down these prophetic keys of interpretation very quickly. We don't have the time to look them up, but make sure you write them down and look it up when you go home. This is a symbolic vision. It represents something. What does it mean? Well, the sea in the Bible represents a populated area of people. You'll find that in Revelation 17 and verse 15. We're talking about a sea of people, multitudes of people. And the wind that blows upon the sea represents war and strife and desolation and destruction. You'll find that in Proverbs 1, verse 27, amongst other passages. The wind represents a time of destruction and desolation that comes from war and strife. And then Daniel saw four beasts rise up out of the sea. These represent kingdoms. And you find that in Daniel 7, verse 17, and verse 23. And since we're right there, let's just go ahead and read it, shall we? Notice Daniel 7, verse 17. We let the Bible interpret itself. It says, these great beasts which are four are for what? Oh, I need your help preaching this sermon tonight. These great beasts which are four are for what? Kings which shall arise out of the earth. Then notice verse 23. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth what? kingdom upon the earth. And so we're not talking about literal animals. We're talking about symbolic animals representing literal kingdoms, kings and their kingdoms. So from the multitudes of people that are warring against each other, Daniel sees four kingdoms, four superpowers rise into existence. And friends, as we take a look at, this character at, at the characteristics of these kingdoms, we will discover something very interesting. You see, God is the greatest teacher in the universe. And the Lord knows how best to teach His children. And for those of you who are teachers, you know that one of the best ways to teach uh, your, 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 your students so that they can remember and retain the information is this principle that we find over and over again utilized by the greatest teacher of all God, especially in prophecy. It's the principle that we call repeat and enlarge. Repeat and what? In other words, you introduce a subject, and then later on, you revisit that subject, you repeat it, and you enlarge upon it. 
enlarging in the sense that you're adding more details of the information you had given before. And that's what God is about to do here in Daniel chapter 7. In fact, he does it over and over again in the books of Daniel and Revelation. You see, this prophecy about these four beasts or kingdoms is God's way of repeating and enlarging upon what he revealed to Daniel in the second chapter with the strange man made of different metals. We studied that last night. Four metals on the image representing four kingdoms. There are four beasts also representing four kingdoms. It represents the same kingdoms. God is using a different symbol to represent the same kingdoms because he is repeating and enlarging. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen. It's taught about Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and then the breakup of Rome, and then we'll continue on with the things that happen after that. Well, friends, I want you to notice that these four beasts are the same animals that we saw in the super beast or the antichrist beast we read about in Revelation chapter 13. The lion, the bear, the leopard, and a terrible beast with ten horns. In other words, friends, these four beasts are the kingdoms that set the foundational characteristics of the composite superpower, the end time super beast or super kingdom in the last day that the devil or the dragon will empower to try to destroy the woman, the church, the people of God. And friends, many people are trying to find out who the Antichrist beast in Revelation 13 is when they don't even have a clue who the four beasts of Daniel 7 are. But you can't know or understand Revelation unless you first get the foundational context of the book of Daniel. And so for that reason, we want to go through these four beasts and find out who they are and what it represents. So now we're in Daniel 7. Let's read the next verse. In verse 4, the first one is a lion with eagle's wings. Let's notice what it says. Daniel said, Daniel 7 verse 4, the first was like a lion and it had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked. And it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given unto it. This first beast, a lion that has eagle's wings, is the kingdom that is parallel to the head of gold on the image of Daniel chapter 2. It represents the kingdom of Babylon. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 50 and verse 43 and 44, the Bible tells us clearly that the king of Babylon shall come up like a what? like a lion. The lion was a fit representation of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Now this lion has two wings on its back. Now what do the wings represent? Well, if you write down Habakkuk chapter 1 verses 6 to 8, wings are a symbol of speed and conquest. And that was a fit representation of the, the spirit of Babylon and how King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to conquer the whole world and rule the world in a very rapid way. And so it represents the kingdom of Babylon. Notice another verse. Jeremiah 50 verse 17, it says that Israel is a scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. This Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, hath broken his bones. My friends, this is a prophecy describing how Babylon would destroy the city of Jerusalem, the, the, the people of God, the children of Israel. And that's exactly what took place. Israel was depicted as a sheep that was scattered because the lion, that is Babylon, drove them away and led them into captivity. And friends, I got the chance to go to 
to preach in the city of Berlin there in Germany not long ago. How many of you have been to Berlin before? Anybody? There's, there's an amazing museum there in the city of Berlin called the Pergamum Museum. Anybody been to the Pergamum Museum? It's very fascinating because at the Pergamum Museum there in Berlin, there were some German archaeologists that excavated some of the ancient ruins of Babylon and they actually brought the walls and the gate of ancient Babylon and they have it displayed there in the city of Berlin and we went there to look at it and on the literal walls of Babylon were pictures of lions with eagle's wings. Exactly what the Bible said. You can also see a portion of the wall in the British Museum as well. It represents the kingdom of Babylon. Now friends, what was one of the main characteristics of Babylon? Well, when you read in Daniel 4 verse 30, it describes the spirit of the king of Babylon. And friends, it was a very proud and arrogant spirit that he had. Notice what the king said. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? The king was very proud and arrogant. He was lifted up in pride. He said, this is what I did. I, I, I. And friends, the Antichrist piece in Revelation 13 is described with having the mouth of a lion. Why? Because it would demonstrate the same pride, arrogance, and riches as that of ancient Babylon. This kingdom in the last days, the Antichrist beast, is a very proud, arrogant, and rich kingdom. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen. The Bible says that the wings upon the line were plucked. Now, what does that mean? Well, if the wings represent speed and conquest, then the plucking or the removing of the wings would represent how that spirit of conquest would, was stripped and removed as Babylon was conquered by another beast or another superpower that would follow. History tells us that Babylon ruled from 605 to 539 B.C. After that, there was another kingdom that began to reign. And I want you to notice as we read the description of this next kingdom. In verse 5, the Bible says in Daniel 7, verse 5, And behold, another beast, a second like to a what? A bear. It raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. And they said unto it, unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. Here the second beast is a bear raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth. It is a kingdom that's parallel with the chest and arms of silver on the image of Daniel chapter 2. It represents the Medes and the Persian Empire. You see the Medes and Persians were two separate kingdoms at first. But they came and united together in order to overcome Babylon. And that's symbolized with the bear raised up on one side, an imbalance of power. The Medes and Persians united, but of the two kingdoms, the Persians were stronger than the Medes. It's symbolized as the bear raised up on one side. But what about the three ribs in the mouth of the bear? Well, friends, that represents the three other kingdoms that the Medes and Persians had to devour or conquer in order to be the sole superpower of the day. They not only had to conquer Babylon, but they also had to conquer Lydia in the north and Egypt in the south. And when they did that, they became the sole superpower of that day. That's the symbol of the three ribs in the mouth of the bear. Now, what is one of the chief characteristics of the Persian Empire, the Medes and the Persians? Well, friends, when you read in the book of Esther, chapter 3 and verse 13, 
we find the description of a man by the name of Haman who influenced the king of, of the Medes and the Persians to pass laws that would persecute and annihilate the people of God. And those laws could not be changed. It could not be revoked. That was one of the chief characteristics of the Medes and the Persians. They would pass persecuting laws against the people of God. And friends, the Antichrist beast in Revelation 13 has the feet of a bear because it would demonstrate that same characteristic. It would be an earthly kingdom that would pass laws to destroy and persecute the people of God. And if that makes sense, if that's clear, would you please say amen. The Medes and Persians, history tells us, ruled from 539 to 331 B.C. After that, there was another kingdom that would follow, this time a leopard kingdom. Let's read it, Daniel 7 and verse 6. The Bible says, After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a, of a fowl. How many wings? Four wings of a fowl. And the beast also had how many heads? Four heads. And dominion was given to it. This leopard with four heads and four wings is parallel with the belly and thighs of brass on the image of Daniel chapter 2. It represents the Grecian Empire under the rulership of Alexander the Great. That was the kingdom, the superpower that followed the Medes and the Persian Empire. And friends, the leopard is a very fast animal. I was just in Africa a few, a few months ago and I got to see the leopard, the elusive leopard firsthand in its natural habitat. Very quick animal. But not only that, this leopard has four wings. Now the lion only had two wings. And so if you put four wings on an already fast animal, that's super speed. Isn't that right? And it's a fit description of the rapid conquest of the first king of Greece, Alexander the Great. Under the short span of about 13, 14 years, Alexander the Great was able to conquer the entire then-known world, conquering the different kingdoms and, and armies of that time very quick during that day and age. The Greeks were fast and fierce fighters. That's the leopard beast. But then we learned last night that though Alexander the Great could conquer the whole world, he could not conquer the greatest enemy of all. And, and who was that? Himself. And just two years after taking dominion over the world, he died in a drunken stupor. He could not conquer his own addictions, his own bad habits. And when he passed away, when he died, there was not one person that was charismatic enough to fill his shoes, and his infant son was too young to take the throne. So what happened was this. Greece was divided into four. The four generals of Alexander's army began to reign over the divided territory of Greece. And that is symbolized by the four heads on the leopard. It's still Greece, but in four parts. And those, are, those generals of, of Alexander's army, their names, Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. Friends, it's amazing how God prophesied what would happen, the, his, the, the, the future of the nations. And secular history confirms that just as the Bible predicted, it actually took place. We can trust the message of the Bible. Amen? Now, what is one of the main characteristics of the Grecian Empire? Well, friends, when you study history, the Grecians were known for popularizing pagan philosophy, human reason, and education all over the ancient world. And friends, I believe that the 
One of the reasons why the Antichrist beast in Revelation 13 has the body of, a, of the leopard is because it would do the same thing. It would exalt human reason above divine revelation. Pagan philosophies. It would be a kingdom that would popularize and spread not divine revelation, but human reason and vain philosophy. History tells us that the Grecian Empire ruled from 331 to 168 B.C. Then after that, there was a fourth beast, a fourth kingdom that would follow. Let's read about this beast. It's a very interesting one. Notice verse 7. Daniel 7, verse 7, it says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. It had great iron teeth. What kind of teeth? Iron teeth. It devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. It was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had how many horns? Ten horns. Now, friends, this fourth beast, there was not one animal that, that was in the, in the, in the world that, that God used to symbolize this fourth kingdom. It was a monster kingdom, a dreadful, terrible beast. It has iron teeth and ten horns. This fourth kingdom is parallel with the long legs of iron on the image of Daniel chapter 2, representing the iron monarchy of Rome. And friends, I believe that the reason why God utilized a terrible-looking monster to depict Rome is because when you study history, the Romans were the masters of cruelty. They were the ones that perfected the art of crucifixion. They knew how to set the nails in such a way where the person, the victim, would not die immediately. They would hang upon the cross for, for days and sometimes even weeks. That's the Roman kingdom. That was the kingdom that was ruling the world when our Lord Jesus was born into this world. Romans were masters of cruelty. They destroyed all who dared oppose their supremacy. And another characteristic of Rome was that the Caesars of Rome were known for commanding the people to worship them as deity, as God. And so we see in Revelation 13 that the Antichrist beasts in the last days, they also have the ten horns just like the Roman kingdom because they would demonstrate that same cruel characteristic and as, as well as propagating false worship. And friends, if that makes sense, would you please say amen. Now of the four, the Roman kingdom ruled the longest. From 168 B.C. to 476 A.D. Now after that, the vision adjusts just a little bit. There's not a fifth beast that's introduced, but rather God zooms in and focuses on the ten horns from that fourth beast. What do these ten horns represent? Well, they're parallel to the ten toes on the image of Daniel chapter 2 signifying the fact that Rome was not conquered by a fifth superpower, but rather Rome was divided into ten different kingdoms. The Bible tells us in Daniel 7 verse 24, you can read it in your Bible, it's also on the screen, it says, and the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten what? Ten kings that shall arise. So Rome was not conquered by a fifth kingdom, but rather it was divided into ten. Ten kings would arise, and friends, these are the nations that make up modern-day Europe today. History tells us that barbarian tribes came from the north and they began to conquer different territories of the vast Roman Empire. And just as there are ten toes on the image and ten horns out of the beast, Rome was divided into ten. They are as follows on the screen. The Alemanni, who are the modern Germans. The Burgundians, who are the Swiss. 
the Francs were the French, the Lombards were the Italians, the Anglo-Saxons were the English, the Suevi were the Portuguese, and the Visigoths were the Spanish. Then you have the Heruli, Vandals, and Ostrogoths, nations that existed amongst the original ten but are extinct today, and we will discover why they no longer exist in a future presentation. But it's interesting how God prophesied what would happen to the nations, and history confirms it happened just as God predicted. Friends, we can trust God. Amen? Now, friends, these ten kingdoms were divided in 476 A.D., and it would remain divided according to prophecy all the way until the second coming of Christ, all the way until the last days. So after Rome, we find the divided or the breakup of Rome, and then after the ten horns are described, God then zooms in even more and focuses on a little horn that rises to power. And we're going to discover tonight, friends, that this little horn is the same Antichrist kingdom that's described in Revelation chapter 13. It has the same characteristics. God is using different symbols to talk about the same thing because He is repeating and enlarging. Notice now in Daniel 7 verse 8 the description of this little horn Antichrist kingdom. It says in verse 8, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. This little horn, friends, is the Antichrist kingdom. Notice what it says in verse 24. It says, Then the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them. Another shall arise when? After them. So I want you to notice that what God is doing here, friends, is He's laying down a timeline. He's laying down a what? In other words, these four beasts, then the ten horns and the little horn, is a sequential timeline that's taking place. And that's the main thing I want us to notice as we lay this foundational message for a future presentation. There is a timeline. God is laying it down for us so that we can see where we are in that timeline. So, he's, so the Bible says, another shall arise after them, and he, that is this little horn, Antichrist kingdom, shall speak great words against who? The Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. So here's a kingdom that's just like the Antichrist beast in Revelation 13 because it's the same. It will make war against the saints, the people of God, horizontally. It will also make war against God vertically through blasphemy and His great words of deception. This, my friends, is a kingdom that claims to take the place as, as judge of the earth. He makes war against God vertically and the people of God horizontally a kingdom that fights against man and God, the great opposer of Christ that sits in the place of God on earth. And I can imagine as, as God is revealing to Daniel about this little horn kingdom, he had to have been asking the question, how long will this blasphemous kingdom reign and pass false judgment on God's people in the earth? How long, God, will you allow this kingdom con to continue to do these terrible things in the world. Now I want you to notice the very next scene in the vision. It suddenly changes. Notice what it says in the next verse. Daniel 7, now verse 9. Verse 8 talked about the little horn. Now notice exactly what happens next in verse 9. It says, 
I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne, his what, everyone? His throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the what was set? The judgment was set and the books were open. Friends, I want you to notice something interesting here. All of a sudden the vision changes and it seems like it's, it's totally off topic. The vision starts with four beasts. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then ten horns divided Rome, then a little horn, and then after the little horn, all of a sudden Daniel sees God's throne in heaven. It seems to be off topic, but it's not. It's talking about the throne, and friends, tell me, what kind of person sits on a throne? A king, and so it's talking about the same thing. It's talking about kings and kingdoms. I can imagine that the reason why God all of a sudden showed Daniel his throne in heaven is because you can imagine that Daniel must have started getting discouraged about all these earthly kingdoms and how they would do terrible things. And all of a sudden, the little horn that would speak blasphemy against God and persecute the saints of God, but then God says, don't worry, Daniel, let me show you what, where, the, where the true king sits. Let me show you he who has the last word. And so Daniel sees the Ancient of Days, that's God sitting upon his throne in the heavens, the angels are there. And the Bible says that the judgment is set and the books are open. God is showing Daniel the great judgment that follows the reign of the Antichrist kingdom. Friends, I want you to write that down. What happens after the reign of the Antichrist? The great judgment of God that happens at God's throne that's located in heaven. The true king sits upon the true throne. You see, the Antichrist's little horn kingdom claimed to be the king, claimed to be the judge, but his judgment was faulty. And so now the true king sits upon the real throne and places that little horn kingdom in its proper place. Notice, friends, that the judgment of God in heaven happens after the reign of the Antichrist kingdom. I, wanna, I want us to just notice that, that demonstrated very clearly. Daniel 7, verse 21 through 22, it says, I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until, what happened? What happened next? The Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. So the little horn is reigning and doing all these things until, what happened next? The true judge sits upon the throne. And then in verse 25 through 27, it says, And he, the little horn, shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. But what happens next? The judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion and consume and destroy it unto the end. My friends, why does God reveal the judgment in heaven after the reign of the Antichrist? Because the purpose of that judgment is twofold. Number one, it is to vindicate his saints. Those who have been falsely accused and falsely judged by the little horn Antichrist kingdom. The true judge is going to make a judgment in favor of the saints. He's going to vindicate his people. And that's good news. Amen? And another reason for the judgment is really to judge the little horn kingdom. That's the purpose of judgment. You know, sometimes we think about judgment as something that's scary. 
something that is doom and gloom, something that we should fear. But friends, the judgment is a good news message because our God is a righteous judge. Amen? Not only is he a righteous judge, he's a merciful judge. And when he sits upon his throne in judgment, he's going to make a judgment in favor of his people. And he will put that little horn in its proper place. And so we see, friends, the sequence of events laid down in Daniel chapter 2 and then repeated and enlarged upon in Daniel chapter 7. God is laying down a timeline of the kingdoms. The first kingdom is which kingdom? Do you remember? Help me. Babylon. After Babylon is Medo-Persia. Then uh, Greece. Then uh, Rome. Then uh, the ten horns, which is divided Rome or divided Europe. Then after the ten horns, a little horn. Who is that? That's the Antichrist kingdom. And then immediately after the Antichrist kingdom, judgment taking place at God's throne in the heavens. My friends, that's basically the message of Daniel chapter 7. And if that's clear, would you please say amen. As Daniel chapter 7 repeats and enlarges upon Daniel chapter 2, so too does Daniel chapter 8 repeat and enlarge upon Daniel chapter 7. Again, God is the greatest teacher. He knows that in order for us to remember and retain the information, he has to repeat it, and he will enlarge upon it. And that's what he's going to do when we follow the context into chapter 8. Let's now study Daniel chapter 8 to see the same sequence of events repeated. God is going to use a different symbol to represent the same kingdoms because he's filling in the gaps. He's fleshing out the prophecy so that we can see it more clearly. And we don't have the time to read every verse of Daniel chapter 8. So we will summarize for the sake of time, but I hope that you'll read it when you go home. In the eighth chapter of Daniel, we find God introducing two beasts that are fighting against each other. Let's read it. Daniel 8 verse 3, it says, I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had how many horns? Two horns. The two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. A ram that's standing. It's already a kingdom that's already established. Two horns on the ram. Both are high, one higher than the other. The higher came up last. What does it mean? We don't have to guess because the Bible interprets itself. Notice verse 20. It tells us who the ram is. The ram which thou sawest having the two horns are the kings of who? Media and Persia. Remember the Medes and the Persians were two separate kingdoms that united together and became one. It's the ram with two horns. One horn is higher than the other. The Persians were stronger than the Medes. In Daniel 7, it was symbolized as a bear raised up on one side. In Daniel 8, it's a ram with two horns, one higher than the other. Again, God uses a different symbol representing the same kingdom. He's repeating and enlarging. Is that clear, yes or no? All right. And then it says in verse 5, Daniel 8, And I was considering, and behold, an he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground, and this goat had a notable horn between his eyes. So now we find the description of a goat that's moving so fast, it's like it's floating. It's like it's hovering across the ground. It's going so quickly, and it has one notable horn between its eyes. Well, what does this he-goat represent? 
verse 21 tells us it represents Greece. It says, and the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the who? The first king. And who is the first king of Greece? Alexander the Great. That's why it's called the great horn. There is a prophecy describing Alexander the Great, who's the first king of Greece. A he-goat with one notable horn and moving so fast, it's like it's floating. In Daniel 7, it was a leopard with four wings, super speed. In Daniel 8, it's a goat that's moving so fast, it's like it's floating. And one horn between his eyes. Now what happened next? Daniel 8, now verse 6 and 7, it says, And the he-goat came unto the ram that had two horns, and ran unto him with the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram. And he was moved with collar against him, and he smote the ram and brake his two horns. What does that mean? It simply represents how Greece overcame Medes and Persians. And then it says in verse 7, And there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. So the goat comes and destroys the ram, breaking the two horns of the ram. It's a symbol of how Alexander the Great and the Grecian armies came and they destroyed the Medes and the Persians. But then notice what happens next. In verse 8, Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones, toward the four winds of heaven. What are the four winds of heaven? North, south, east, and west. So notice, friends, the Bible says that that great horn, at the height of its strength, was broken, and it was replaced by four horns that came from the four winds of the heavens. What does it mean? Verse 22 tells us, Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. What does it mean, friends? You, you, you understand this. The great horn, Alexander the Great, at the height of his strength, just after two years of taking the throne, he's broken. He dies in a drunken stupor. And then four horns take the place of that great horn. It's a symbol of the four generals that began to rule over the Grecian territory. Cassandra, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. In Daniel chapter 7, it's four heads on the leopard. In Daniel chapter 8, it's one horn that's broken that's replaced with four horns. Divided Greece. And if that's clear, would you please say amen. What is God doing? He is repeating and enlarging. He's using a different symbol to represent the same sequential timeline because he's filling in the gaps. He's adding more details, and he continues to use this principle of repeat and enlarge all the way into the book of Revelation. And so we're getting the foundational context to understand the rest of Bible prophecy. And so now we're at divided Greece. According to the timeline that we already laid out, what should be the next kingdom that should follow divided Greece? What should come next? Who comes after Greece? Rome. And that's what we see in Daniel chapter 8. Rome comes after the divided Grecian Empire, after the four horns. But I want you to notice, God uses a different symbol to represent the same thing. Notice what it says in verse 9, the very next verse. 
Verse 9, it says, And out of one of them, talking about the four winds, or the four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west, from one of those directions came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. My friends, listen. This little horn that begins is Rome, but in its first phase. Notice, at first, this little horn is waxing great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. It represents Rome in its horizontal phase. Rome destroying the surrounding kingdoms. The south, the east, and the pleasant land is a symbol or a, 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 a depiction of Jerusalem and how Rome was ruling over Jerusalem and Israel during that time. Friends, the little horn at, in Daniel 8 represents Rome first in its horizontal phase. But then the next verse describes how this same kingdom, Rome, starts to make war vertically against God. And this is the beginning of the reign of the Antichrist. Verse 10, it says, And it waxed great even to where now? The host of heaven. At first it was horizontal. Now this same kingdom turns vertical. It waxed great to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts of the stars to the ground. It stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the hosts. And then verse 24 and 25 gives the interpretation. It says, his power shall be mighty. He shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper in practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy also he shall cause craft or deceit to prosper in his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many. And he shall also stand up against the prince of the princes. This is now Rome in its second phase. I call it the vertical phase. Where the, where the kingdom is trying to fight against God himself. Now we, we mentioned before that no one can overpower God physically because God is almighty. Amen? So the way in which this little horn in its vertical phase fights against God is through craft, through deceit, through earthly policies that violate God's principles and God's commandments. This, my friends, is the beginning of the reign of the Antichrist kingdom. So now we are filling in the gaps. Medo-Persia and then Greece, one notable horn, Alexander the Great, broken, four horns, divided Greece. Then a little horn, at first horizontal phase, Rome attacking the surrounding kingdoms. But then it turns vertical and attacks God. That's the Antichrist. And then notice what happens next. The question is asked, how long? Notice Daniel 8, verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and here's what the angel, the holy one said. How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the given about the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? The question is asked, as the little horn in its vertical phase is being described, the question is asked, how long will this continue to go on? The sanctuary will be trampled underfoot. Who is the one that trampled the sanctuary and the teachings of God? It was that little horn kingdom. How? Through blasphemy, deception, and lies. How long? How long, God, will you allow this terrible thing to take place? How long? Now, friends, what should, the, what should be the next thing we see happen after this question is asked according to the timeline that has already been laid down in Daniel 7. What happens immediately after the Antichrist reign? What happens? 
judgment taking place where? In heaven. Where specifically in heaven? At God's throne. And that's exactly what we see in Daniel chapter 8. But what God does is he uses a different symbol to represent that same thing because he's repeating and enlarging. So the question is asked, after Daniel sees how the little horn is going to trample upon the sanctuary and lie against God and fight against God through blasphemy, the question is how long? Then the answer to that question is found in the very next verse. And that verse is going to repeat and enlarge upon God's judgment at God's throne. And notice the language of the verse. Daniel 8, now verse 14. God now gives a time prophecy. To answer the question, how long will these terrible things continue to take place? And so God says, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be what? My friends, that time prophecy is the answer to the question in the preceding verse. How long? Unto 2,300 days. Then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, friends, something only needs to be cleansed is if it was defiled. Isn't that right? And if you look up at that word cleanse in the original language, it's also the word restored. What word? And something only needs to be restored if it was broken. And it was the little horn antichrist kingdom that broke the holy things of God through deception and blasphemy. But God is saying, don't worry. Yes, the little horn did that, but I'm going to restore that which the enemy has broken. Amen? Our God is a God of restoration. And friends, as we bring out a practical application from this, the devil is a thief that comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And I'm sure that all of us, in one way or another, have experienced the destructive power of the enemy. He destroys our health. He destroys our finances. He destroys families. He destroys marriages. He destroys minds. But God is saying that if we let him and give him permission, that he can restore that which the devil has destroyed. He can cleanse which sin has defiled. Thank God he is the God of cleansing and the God of restoration. Amen? God is trying to communicate this beautiful reality to Daniel. The Antichrist, Satan, is a destroyer, but I am a restorer of that which is broken. Now, friends, this verse is actually pointing us to the same event that was described in Daniel 7 after the reign of the little horn. God's judgment in heaven. The cleansing of the sanctuary is synonymous with God's judgment in heaven. I want you to notice this chart that, that, that helps us to visualize everything we studied up to this point. Notice the chart with me on the screen. We're talking about the superpowers of prophecy. The kingdoms that would rule from Daniel's day until the last day. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, divided Rome, Antichrist, then the judgment in heaven. In chapter 2, it's gold, silver, brass, iron, then ten toes. In Daniel 7, God repeats and enlarges. Lion, bear, leopard, terrible beast, ten horns, little horn, then the throne judgment in heaven. Now Daniel chapter 8, as we just studied. It doesn't have a symbol in chapter 8 depicting Babylon. Why? Because by the time the vision of chapter 8 is given, the kingdom of Babylon is almost off the scene. And God is not so much concerned with the things of the past, but rather the things of the future. Can you say amen? Oh, your past may be dark, but your future is bright in Jesus. Amen? 
Don't let your past hold you back, friends. So chapter 8 begins with Medo-Persia. God is zooming in on the sequence. Ram with two horns. Then after that, Greece, one notable horn, Alexander the Great. Then four horns that take its place. Then after Greece is the little horn in its horizontal face. Rome attacking the surrounding nations. And then the little horn in its vertical face, attacking God through blasphemy, deception, and lies. That's the Antichrist. Then immediately after that, the question is asked, how long? The answer, after 2,300 days, the sanctuary will be cleansed. Which shows that the cleansing of the sanctuary and the throne judgment are synonymous. God uses a different symbol to represent the same thing because he is repeating and enlarging. And if that makes sense, if that's clear, would you please say amen? Now, some of you might be wondering, well, what does the cleansing of the sanctuary have to do with judgment? It has everything to do with judgment. Why? Because remind me, where does judgment take place? Where does it take place, as we've read in Daniel 7? It takes place in heaven, but where in heaven? At God's throne. But the question is, where is God's throne in heaven? It's in the sanctuary. Notice what it says here in Jeremiah 17, 12. Write it down. Jeremiah 17, 12 says, A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Friends, judgment happens at God's throne, and the throne is found in God's sanctuary. Friends, what God is trying to communicate through this prophecy is that even though we will experience trials and troubles and persecution, we don't have to be afraid of what the devil is going to do because God is going to make every wrong right. He has a sanctuary, and that word sanctuary is a place of refuge, safety, and security, and that's where God will judge in favor of his people. Can you say amen? Bible tells us in Psalms 20 verse 1 and verse 2, it says, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. That's judgment language, friends. We have an adversary, the devil, who works through the Antichrist beast and the kingdoms of the world to attack God's people, to accuse God's people. We have an accuser, and therefore we need a lawyer. Can you say amen? And he's going to send help in that time of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. He is the God of Jacob. May the Lord answer you in the day. May he defend you. The God of Jacob, friends, you know that reminds us of? Jacob was the one that sinned against God and man. And because of that sin, he had to flee for his life as a fugitive. When he lied against his father and stole the birthright blessing, blessing from his brother Esau, he tried to fulfill God's promise with his own works. And as a result of jumping the gun and trying to do it by himself, he had to flee. But God had mercy on Jacob. But when Jacob went back 20 years later to receive the promised inheritance, Esau was coming with 400 men of war seeking vengeance upon Jacob for the wrong he'd committed against him 20 years ago. And it seems like Jacob's past is coming back to haunt him. It seems like he's about to reap the results of the sin that he had sown 20 years ago. But then God came and touched Jacob. You know what, remember what happened, what, how Jacob responded at first? 
Jacob turned and he began to wrestle with the Lord all night long, wrestling physically against God. But then at the breaking of the day, after a night of worry, a night of wrestling, the Lord touched the hollow of his thigh and Jacob's thigh was out of joint. He was physically weakened in order to experience a spiritual victory. The angel of the Lord said, let me go. Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And then God said, what's your name? Did God know what his name was? Why is he asking then if he already knows? Because in the asking of what Jacob's name was, it was a reminder of the sin that he'd committed 20 years before that. Because his father Isaac also asked him of his identity three times. Who are you? Are you my son Esau? Sounds like Jacob. Who are you? And last time his father asked him that, Jacob lied about his name. He claimed to be someone that he was not. And because of that sin, in trying to fulfill the promise by his own works, he had to flee from home. He suffered the wrath of his brother. He never saw his mother again. He was forgiven. But now he goes back home to receive the promise, the, the assurance but his circumstances are going against the promise of God. He is facing an enemy. And it seems that God's word is not going to be fulfilled. His circumstances are, are going against God's promise. Have you ever experienced that? God says that he's going to provide for your needs, but the bills are piling up. God says that he is the gentle healer, but you're getting more and more sick. And your circumstances, you focus so much on your surroundings, and it's violating, it's contradicting God's promise, and there's a struggle between faith and doubt. That's where Jacob was, but then God touched him. And when he realized that it was the Lord that he was wrestling with, the Lord asked him, what's your name? Friends, that question, what's your name? God was trying to provoke a, a confession from Jacob. Because remember what the word Jacob means, deceiver and liar. And when Jacob responded and said, I am Jacob, it was his opportunity to come clean about his life. Yes, I'm a deceiver. I'm a liar. I've not been real. I've not been open. And I'm not worthy of the blessing I'm demanding from you. Yes, I am Jacob. The confession of his name was a confession of his sin. I'm Jacob. I know I'm not worthy of this blessing. Yes, I'm Jacob. I've lied. I've made mistakes in my past. But then God said, from now on, you will no longer be known as Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince... You have wrestled with God and prevailed. My friends, that's when God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And the changing of the name was more than just changing the title by which he was called. A change of name represents a change of life, a change of character, a change of reputation. God was saying, no longer will you be known as a deceiver and a liar like you were. Now you'll be known as a prince of God, one that held on to me by faith. And even though you were physically weakened, even though the circumstances of your life were going against my promise, you held on to me and you did not let go. Therefore, I'm going to bless you and despite your circumstances you will experience the reality of my blessing that's what the verse is saying friends the God of Jacob is going to defend us that same God that changed Jacob to Israel that gave him a new beginning a new reputation a new start will do the same for you and for me amen 
so that when we face the enemies of this world, we need not be afraid. He's going to send us help from the sanctuary. And I hope you're encouraged by that tonight. I read a verse in the book of Psalms I want to share with you tonight. We're almost finished. In Psalm 73, verse 2 to 7, it says, I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. Here the psalmist is describing his confusion as he sees the prosperity of the wicked. He just can't wrap his mind around it. How is it possible that the wicked who serve not God seem to be so blessed? Listen, friends, not every blessing comes from the Lord. The devil can bless you too with things that would distract you from God. And so the psalmist is wondering, and I can imagine that Daniel had to have felt the same thing when he saw the prophecy of the little horn and how that little horn was going to prosper and how he was going to wear out the saints and speak blasphemy against God. I can imagine that, that Daniel ha- had the same questions. How, can, how is it possible for the wicked to prosper so much? And then the psalmist says something interesting in verse 16. Psalm 73, verse 16. He said, when I thought how to understand this. Understand what? How the wicked prosper so. When he tried to wrap his mind and comprehend it, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. And that's why God showed Daniel. After the prosperity of the little horn, He showed the sanctuary being cleansed in heaven. As the little horn sought to sit on God's throne as judge and king over all the earth, the true judge will set up his throne in his sanctuary. This is where the true king and kingdom will reign. And from that throne, he will execute his righteous judgments upon the little horn. And he will at the same time provide a refuge for his downtrodden people. There is help and hope in the sanctuary, friends. Now, we don't have the time, unfortunately, to go through the beautiful truth of the sanctuary. That's another study for another night. But let me give you a quick glimpse into this beautiful truth. The sanctuary in the Old Testament was the center of the sacrificial services. And there is one central character in the sanctuary that every service revolved around, and that, my friends, was the lamb that was slain. And that lamb is a symbol of Jesus. The sanctuary, friends, teaches us of the power of Jesus, the power of the lamb that overcomes the beast and the dragon and all the enemies of God. And friends, Revelation picks up on this imagery, and I want you to notice what it says in Revelation. The the lamb is a symbol of Christ the pure one that would die for the sins of humanity. And in the book of Revelation, it talks about the lamb that was slain. It's the power of Jesus triumphing over evil. Now, friends, there's only one. Let let, let me me say it like this. The word lamb is mentioned 31 times in the New Testament. How many? But 27 of those times, it's found in the book of Revelation. 
In other words, when you study Revelation, you'll find repeated over and over again the imagery of the Lamb. That was the central figure in the sanctuary. The reason is this, friends. The only way you can accurately understand the book of Revelation is if you first understand the sanctuary and this imagery of the Lamb. And the Bible describes the Lamb upon a throne. Upon a what? But the Lamb is slain upon that throne. What kind of person sits on thrones? So you know what Revelation is communicating? Here's the true king that sits upon the throne. But it's a king that has been slain. Why? Because it shows that the nature of the true kingdom is very different. You see, a lamb is a very different animal from a lion, a bear, and a, and a, and a, and a leopard. You see, the earthly kingdoms, they conquered by the power of force. Oh, but the lamb conquers by a totally different power. Not by the power of force, but rather he conquers by the power of self-sacrificing love. Oh, the Lamb does have power to force whoever, but He doesn't because He's a Lamb of love. And He conquers the world, friends, not by forcing us into submission, but He conquers by the power of a love that is stronger than death, a love that will say, I would rather die than you perish. That's how He conquers, friends. And have you allowed the love of this lamb to conquer your heart? The evil and the beast that is within every single human heart can only be conquered by the power of the love of the Lamb of God. Amen? When we see that cross and we see that unselfish sacrifice, it has the power to dethrone the beast in our lives. It has the power to conquer the sinful nature. It has the power to make us free. Amen? As I mentioned, the word lamb is found 27 times in Revelation. There's only one other animal that's mentioned that amount of times in Revelation, and it's the beast. The word lamb is found 27 times in Revelation. The beast is mentioned in 27 verses in Revelation. So when you study Revelation... You'll find repeated over and over the beast and the lamb, the beast and the lamb. Why? Because the book of Revelation, we find a contest, a contrast, a controversy, a conflict between Jesus Christ the lamb and the Antichrist beast. Two different kingdoms, two different kings. And the beast is simply the counterfeit of the lamb. And we find this battle starting in heaven, moving to the earth, but soon coming to a close. But notice the, con, the, the climax of the conflict. Revelation 17, verse 12, we're almost finished. The Bible says this. It says, And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet. Now, friends, that word kingdom, the word kingdom there, is it plural or is it singular? It's singular, right? Ten kings, that's plural, will not receive one singular kingdom. Why? Because iron and clay don't mix. The kingdoms, there's not going to be a one world government, friends. However, they're going to try to unite. They receive no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. 
these have one what? So there is going to be a oneness amongst the divided kingdoms of the world, but it's not a one world government. But what is the nature of their oneness? They have one mind. That means one intent, one resolve, one goal, one agenda. Yes, there's going to be a unity amongst the nations, globalism, uniting people in one goal, one agenda, one mind. And the inevitable results of this ecumenical unity is that they're going to give their power and their strength to who? Not the lamb, the beast. And thus Satan the dragon empowers the beast by causing the divided kingdoms of the world to yield themselves to the leadership and the authority of the antichrist beast, a kingdom on the earth that claims to have the solution to the global problems of the world. And that's why, friends, this kingdom has the characteristics of all the other beasts because it actually has the support of the other kingdoms of the world. Here is the final super beast of the last days. They're going to come together in one mind, and friends, that's what we're seeing happening today more quickly than ever before. Globalism, friends. All the nations coming together, not in a one-world government, but one agenda, one goal, one resolve. And notice what's going to happen as a result of this unity. It says, these shall make war with who? The Lamb. They're going to try to fight against God. Now, remember we mentioned the other, uh, a few moments ago that no one can overpower God physically. So this is not going to be some kind of physical battle. Yes, there might be a physical element, but it's more than that. No, because no one can overpower God physically. So the way in which they're going to make war with the Lamb is through deception, deceit, lies, false doctrine, and seeking to make war against God's bride, the church. Now, friends, it looks like an unfair match, doesn't it? Have you ever seen a lamb stand up against a lion? I was just in Africa a few months ago. I saw a lion devouring a cow. You see, a lamb doesn't stand a chance against a lion. But how about a lion and a bear? Then on top of that, a leopard. Then a terrible beast, and then a super beast that has all those characteristics. You see, friends, the outlook at first looks so bleak. It seems like an unfair match. How could a lamb stand up against a beast? Is there any hope? Who's going to win this war? The Bible says in the next verse, and the lamb shall overcome them. My friends, this lamb may look meek and lowly, but this lamb has the power to slay dragons. Amen? It says that in this battle between good and evil, the true king and kingdom will prevail. The lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and they that are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Friends, I'm so grateful that we don't have to be afraid of anything because the lamb wins. And you know what? Because he wins, we win too. Amen. Now, by ourselves, we don't stand a chance against a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a terrible beast, and the Antichrist beast. By ourselves, we will be overcome. But friends, if we're with the Lamb, we win. I don't know about you, but I just want to be with Him. I want to be with Jesus. You know what we call that? We call that victory by association. You see, we don't win the victory, the Lamb does. But because we're with Him and we associate with Him, we win the victory too. Victory by association. It's just like, you know, some, uh, some people, and uh, they have their favorite sports team. 
And whenever their team takes the court or the field and scores a touchdown or, or, or some, some points, the one that associates with that team felt like they scored a point. And when their team wins, they feel like, man, we won. But that person didn't step foot on the field or the court. They didn't spend that time preparing and training. They didn't score any points, but they feel like they won because they associate with that team. That's victory by association. Jesus wins the victory. When we associate with him, we win too. But notice, friends, it's not only going to be victory by corporate association, but also victory by personal assimilation. Because the Bible says that they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And what does it mean to be faithful? It means to be full of faith, the faith of Jesus. We're full of Jesus, friends. Association and assimilation. And so, my friends, as we've studied what the kingdoms of the world are going to do this evening, it sounds scary, but don't you fear. Stay close to Jesus. Learn to love him because he first loved us. And as long as we're with Jesus, we don't have to be afraid of the beast. And when we study the book of Revelation in the context of the power of the Lamb, Revelation is no longer a scary book. It's an exciting book. A book that points us to the power, the victory, the grace, and the love of Jesus. How many of you want to be on the Lamb's team in the last days? And so here's the prayer Revelation 5, verse 13, and it says, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such that are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, let's read this together, friends. Let's read. It says, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. I want to sing that final song of victory when the Lord Jesus returns. How about you? And so fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Tonight, we didn't have the time to dissect all the details and the implications of what we studied. The main thing I want you to take home tonight is the sequence. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, divided Rome, Antichrist, judgment in heaven, the cleansing of the sanctuary, a place of refuge and security for us in the last days. Let's dwell there by faith. What do you say? Amen? If you want to be on the winning team, I invite you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and let the Lamb Jesus take his rightful place on the throne of your heart tonight. Make that decision, friends, as we close with prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we're so grateful for the wonderful words of life that we have heard and considered tonight. We thank you, Lord, for helping us to understand Bible prophecy. And Lord, we see tonight that prophecy is not scary news, it's exciting news. It shows us not only what the enemy is going to do, but what you have done and are going to do. And, and Lord, you are the true king, the true judge. You will have the last word. And we thank you, dear God, that you're God of restoration. You're a God that can change our name, our character, our lives, our reputation. You're the God of Jacob that defends us from the sanctuary. Thank you, Lord, there is, that there is safety, security, stability, satisfaction, and salvation in Jesus. 
Lord, teach us what it means to dwell in your sanctuary by faith. And we pray, Lord, that you would dwell in our sanctuary, our body temple, that you, the Shekinah glory, would sit upon the ark, the throne of our lives, that you will be the king, the judge, the Lord of us. We thank you that you are truly the Lord of love that slays the beast within. Oh, please give us that experience, we pray. And bring us back tomorrow. Take us home safely tonight. We thank you for hearing this prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Let all of God's people say, Amen.